Radical Secular, a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. Email us at theradicalsecular at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at radical underscore secular. Follow us on Twitter at radical secular. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hello, and welcome back to The Radical Secular. I'm Christoph Defoe. I'm Sean Prophet. We're joined today by my dear friend, Stephanie Roth-Goldberg, for a conversation about body image, diet culture, eating disorders, and how those issues intersect with social justice. Stephanie will also join us for our news segment, during which we'll discuss a recent article about the lasting psychological impact of the Trump era. But before we get into any of that, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and write us a review. And tell your friends and family about our show. Word of mouth matters. Okay, let's move on now to our guest segment. We are pleased to welcome to the show Stephanie Roth-Goldberg. Stephanie Roth-Goldberg is an interactive psychodynamic psychotherapist and founder of the Intuitive Psychotherapy Center in New York City. Her clinical areas of expertise include treating eating disorders and disordered eating from a health at every size paradigm. Stephanie is a certified intuitive eating counselor and believes in the intuitive eating anti-diet model. Stephanie is also an accomplished triathlete and her special interests include working with athletes suffering from body and eating disturbances as well as performance anxiety. Stephanie is also a mother to her two children, a partner to her husband, and one of my closest friends of all time, and an all-around cool-ass woman. Without further ado, The Radical Secular presents Stephanie Roth-Goldberg. Stephanie, you're one of my closest friends of all time. We've been through thick and thin together. I can't tell you how happy I am to have you here on the show. And by the way, I'm really happy that we go by our full names now, Stephanie and Christoph versus Steph and Chris. I think it's a step forward in our lives, in our relationship. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really psyched to be here. And I'm also glad we use our full names now. <laughs> and look, uh, so uh, what's up with your shirt? So my shirt says, oh, my hair's really long. It says, <laughs> I don't give a fuck about your diet, Susan. Ah, uh, That's great. This shirt came out or was printed about a year before Karen became the, uh-huh, the uh-huh. name. So now uh-huh. it's made with Karen, <laughs> but I have the, I suppose, original version. Um, That's perfect. Which is funny because my mother's name is Susan and she talks a lot about her diet. That like is so funny. Watchers. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. That's so fucking funny that it's Susan because I was like, your mom's name is Susan and yeah. she's really into diets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like to wear this around the house when she's home. <laughs> so, oh, that's perfect. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, uh, how about Sean? How about your t-shirt today, man? Well, mine is a Yoda shirt, and it has uh, free words of wisdom. And you can see you can tear off these little tags on the oh, bottom. Oh, nice! Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> nice. And the one that's most relevant to this show is "Size Matters Not." Ah. Mm. Mm. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Perfect. Um, I'm not wearing a diet-related shirt. Um, <laughs> I'm wearing my. <laughs> I'm wearing a, um, a Pod Save America shirt, and I'm wearing the Pod Save America shirt for a specific reason, and that is because uh, uh, Stephanie and I and her husband, Stephanie's husband, and a now husband, um, and uh, my um, 
wife and, and some friends, we went up to ski up in Vermont and it was in 2017, February, right after the election. And it was like, I was in a really bad place. It was raw. It was new. It felt like we were living, we're about to be living under fascism. And by the way, on the way up there, I was harassed by a police officer. And that's a whole other story. That was, it was intense. Like it was intense. Lindsay was crying, had the camera out, thought that may, like this was one of those times. It was insane. Mm. Um, and then Stephanie, at that, at, uh, we were on the, on the chairlift and she introduced me to Pod Save America. And it was just the, it was this light of like hope, a beacon of hope, uh, like a a, a, fi a fighting, like a, a a call to fight back in a way that was so important to me at that moment. Um, I still listen to that show weekly. Um, I don't listen to it as much as I used to, but at least once a week I listen to it. Um, still an outstanding show uh, and uh, and such a big help for me in those times. So, Stephanie, as always, thank you for that. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm so glad. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so uh, so again, thanks to, for being here on the show, Steph, um, Ani. And uh, let's <laughs> let's get into our like really targeted and human centric news topic for today. You're going to join us for the news topic. And it's uh, sort of on brand for today's show, which is the psycho psychology and the psychological impact of the Trump era. Um, I so let me just read my little uh, script here. Um, most weekdays, I listen to a podcast morning show called What a Day from Crooked Media. That's uh, also the same organization that does the uh, Positive America, incidentally. Uh, the other day, they did an unusual segment in which they played short clips of several women expressing their struggles with pandemic-induced unemployment and related mental health issues. They chose women because statistically speaking, women are faring worse in the COVID recession than men with black women, as always, bearing the fucking brunt. What else is new? Uh, these those women's expressions of frustration and anger and fear stand in stark contrast to the relatively detached feeling COVID not COVID relief negotiations that are ongoing in Washington. Of course, America's suffering under Trump and the GOP didn't begin with COVID-19. The pandemic is just the most recent and the most widespread manifestation of that suffering. So Vox released a really excellent article last week that goes into considerable detail about the psychological toll the Trump era has taken on Americans in general and members of marginalized groups in particular. I'd like for us to react to some of those excerpts now from that article. Okay. And uh, so getting into the excerpt now, I'll read the excerpt, a lot of reading here on the front end, but we'll get into the conversation. Okay. The problems Trump brought to light, racism, xenophobia, and transphobia, to name just a few, certainly didn't start with him. But from the moment he announced his campaign in a speech maligning Mexican people as rapists, he made such attitudes more explicit than ever before within the bounds of traditional party politics. His rhetoric helped embolden a wave of hate crimes across the country, targeting Muslim Americans, immigrants, and a number of other groups he had demonized, in case anyone forgot that that's what happened. Um, <laughs> How could we? <laughs> How could we? <laughs> Meanwhile, all his, his constant all caps tweeting, his preference for staff who enabled rather than checked his worst impulses and his return to campaign style rallies shortly after his election all led to a relentless news environment that subjected Americans to the president's disjointed and frequently abusive thoughts multiple times a day. In the first years of Trump presidency, Trump tweeted more than 11,000 times. 5,889 of those tweets, according to the New York Times, attacked someone or something. 
While Trump was able to energize a core of his supporters with a mix of bravado, defiance, and racism, for many others, his presidency was quite simply scary. In, Amer the, in the American Psychological Association's 2016 Stress in America survey, 63% of Americans said the future of the country was a significant source of stress. 56% said they were stressed out by the current political climate. And a 2018 version of that same survey, those numbers went to six, up to 69% and 62% re respectively. So I, that's a lot that I just read there, and a lot of it we know, but it's important, I think, to sort of rehash and re, just to think about what we just lived through, um, because it's going to be really relevant to the rest of our conversation. So I'd like for all of us to sort of react to that terrible report. Um, and maybe we'll start with you, Stephanie, since you're the guest. Do you want to you have any comments on that? Sure. Yeah, I have so many. And it's interesting <laughs> you used past tense, what we mm -hmm. all lived through. I have to mm -hmm. say, I could not disagree with that more. We are mm -hmm. still living this. Um, all of those policies are in place. I think it is the Supreme Court is one of the worst things that have happened, and that's not going away. So I think we are living in this uh, present tense, for sure. Um, Great point. As a therapist, I'm very much still living in it. And oh, as bet. a mother in this pandemic. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, people are in this article. One of the quotes that stood out to me is um, I and I'm not quoting this directly, but something about how you're constantly in a state of hypervigilance. And I think we could say that maybe that's somewhat past tense. That feels as though it's eased, but it doesn't, it takes a while to recover from any sort of active, uh, whether it's body or mind trauma state. And so I think, you know, even if we're not constantly in that state, you know, I feel the news cycle is a little more reasonable at the moment, but um, you're still sort of living in that, feeling state. Um, and the pandemic, you know, is still raging and, um, and it feels unsure what's going to happen in the government. I think Biden's making some moves, but I also, you know, I think it, the majority isn't enough to get as much done as we would like. And so, um, I think we're still very much living in this. That's, that's such a great point, right? Because, <clears throat> And I'm thinking about it in terms of trauma, right? It's not like, it's not that like the, the, that acute trauma disappears and then suddenly everything's fine, right? right. It, 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 right. It's not like that, right? Our, our minds, right? And, and by the way, I don't think it fully, it took me personally a long time to come to terms with the fact that Trump was president in the first place, right? It did that, right. that didn't, that didn't just turn on one day and suddenly I was like, okay, it was like, it was a shock. It was almost like this sort of, slow coming to terms with it and sort of coming off of that sort of high cortisol, like flight or flight, like four mm -hmm. years of that shit, right? It's like four years of this, of like, cause look, I mean, I'll bring this like real, really personal for me is that it, it, it felt to me like every time I saw a, Ma a MAGA hat or a MAGA flag, it, it felt like it feels like when I hear something racist, Right. Mm -hmm. Which is like, which is For like, sure. which is a physical, Absolutely, yeah. it's a physical feeling that happens to me every time I hear something racist, even if it's not pointed at me. Right. It's like right. even it just in the abstract, just the knowledge that people like that exist and that they they just don't they just don't think my life is as worth as much as theirs does is like that is emotionally taxing. So my point is that like the, that doesn't just go away one day. 
One of the things I would say is, uh, I'm sorry, you were going to say something? No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, well, one of the things I sense whenever I see a MAGA hat or a Trump flag or, or you know, Trump 2020 sticker or whatever, these are people who are devoted to ethnic cleansing. They're devoted to turning the United States mm -hmm. into a, uh, if not, if not a, a completely white Christian nation, uh, certainly a nation where everyone else is a distant third or fourth or fifth class citizen, right? Mm -hmm. And this is also not like a situation where when Trump is out, where it, it would be like coming back from a war where you, the trauma is over and you can start your life and you're dealing with PTSD. Right. It's like there's waves of of uh, of continuing trauma and PTSD from previous previous trauma that are cycling. And so I just I think that and, and what made it particularly worse was the constant election fraud narrative whereby, oh. you know, mm -hmm. from November 7th or whenever it was finally called and everybody was celebrating in the streets. And then it was like, oh, wait, not so fast. You know, he's mm -hmm. not done. He's not he, he, he might come back. And even all the way up until two days before the inauguration, when Mike Lindell went into the White House with a, uh, a paper on there talking about calling up, you know, declaring martial law, it's like there was no way to sleep. Trump ruined Thanksgiving uh, yeah. with his rant, a 45 minute rant on Thanksgiving about the stolen election. I mean, we, we were trying to like to. And every time we try to move on and, and they're still doing it, like there's another date. March 4th is now a date where a lot of the insurrectionists are talking about some big new thing going going down. It's like I think they're completely full of shit, but who knows what they're planning or what's going to happen? It's it's interesting. To, well, and also the reason we couldn't just accept the inauguration is we were all waiting for Georgia, which was a yeah. big deal. So big it's like, deal. oh, great. Biden won. But. What's happening in the Senate, you know, so um, mm -hmm. but Christoph, you make a really good point because there's a house that I drive by twice a week when we go pick up the woman who does our child care and they have Trump flags and it's as if they decorated for Christmas with Trump lights. Mm -hmm. It's it's I always say every single week I'm somehow still surprised that they're, you know, it, it looks like a I don't know. That's probably where everyone in the community goes and plans whatever it is they plan and it seems terrifying um but and i'm still shocked and it's it i don't know why it's still shocking right but that idea that it's not over and you still are in this state of hypervigilance and i get sort of scared almost driving by even though i'm in a car and the house is obviously set back they have no idea who i am whatever but um it's just that idea. I'm always thinking, what's going on in that house? Those people must be evil. Mm -hmm. um, what are they planning? What are they going to do? And so I think we're still very much in that state, even though Trump himself is gone. Right. Um, right. That's a really good point. You know, also relatedly, and this is why the Confederate the Confederate monument issue is so important, right? Mm -hmm. Because because what these things are symbols of white supremacy. The MAGA hat and the MAGA flag, they're not just flags. It's not like a fucking New York Giants flag, right? No, it's not just your team. No, 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 no. This is a statement you're making. This goes to your point, Sean, right? Mm -hmm. the, this is a statement you're making that I believe in white supremacy. That is what the statement you're making. And by the way, Christian supremacy, right? Uh, let's talk about Jewish space lasers, right? And like, because when it comes down to racism, right? It like it 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 doesn't take long before there's a Jewish cabal 
running the world, right? That's always what it comes down to right. with the Proud Boys, with 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 Bobert, with uh, with Marjorie Taylor Greene. It always comes down to basically black people are being manipulated by and not black people and liberals are being manipulated by a Jewish conspiracy by a Jewish conspiracy. That is the bottom line of every single what that's what's behind every one of those fucking flags. This is what it is. I mean, a hundred years ago, almost to the day, okay, uh this conspiracy got its start in Germany because the Jews were being blamed for uh, the Germans losing World War One and all of the war sure. reparations were supposedly going to Jewish bankers and people who were trying to oppress. Right. So that was a major, major point in the start of Nazism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism obviously is at the bottom of the entire uh, of the entire uh, the blood libel idea behind the whole QAnon thing. Right. I Which mean, goes back it, almost a thousand it go, years. It go, that hmm. goes back a thousand years. It's the same shit. But by the way, Trump is so good at what he does that so many Jews voted for him and would stand by that to this day that, that, you know, he's for Israel and somehow that's the dividing line. And actually nothing makes me more furious than that. Um, But yeah, I mean, Zionism and not and Nazism have are are really branches of the same tree. It's almost like, I mean, the Jews were victims of the Holocaust and then they went and started a whole, it almost repeated the cycle with the Palestinians. Yeah, so right. that's a that's a very complicated question. So I, I want to I so just circle back quickly, uh, Stephanie, and that is, are you obviously with you can't divulge details and we wouldn't ask you to, but like to what extent are you seeing? Have you seen in your practice right um, this this sort of dealing with the, the fallout of the Trump era? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. I'm going to say it in a somewhat backwards way. And Uh um, I think the most notable thing is when someone isn't talking about politics Mm. or the the nature of what's going on in our country. Um, And I'm part of a psychoanalytic institute and I'm part of, you know, this peer supervision group. And we always talk about what's going on with the people who aren't talking about this actually, because the majority of people are. Um, and a lot of what comes up in, in therapy, or at least with my particular clients is this fighting and the disagreements among family members that, you know, they're so split. Oh, I, you know, my parents voted for Trump. How do I handle this? Or um, my in-laws voted for Trump, something like that. And that stress. So it's not, sure just, and I think that's part of this too. It's not just, we watch the news and that's terrifying. It's then how do you handle dinners? How do you handle, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever your husband's husband or husband's wife and, or or, I mean, your brother's husband or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's everywhere you look, it, it, uh, I think causes chaos. I also um, work with a few clients who identify as LGBTQ. And oh. I think for for that population, um, this has been devastating and Brutal. terrifying. And, um, you know, of course it comes up because they're getting stripped of their rights or they were. And and again, the Supreme Court is, is equally terrifying. And I also work with a lot of survivors of sexual abuse. And this brings up a whole lot of trauma for them. So, um, 
it's like I said, it's only notable when it isn't affecting someone's life. That's the most notable thing, I think. That, that's if really, that makes sense. That makes a ton of sense, and that's a that's really really insightful. And uh, because and and it, what I, what it triggers in my mind is this idea, this feeling, this sense, and is that. It, let me, let me come at this in a backward way. And that is the, uh, we now, the silence from Twitter is deafening, right? All of a sudden, and, and, and the reason why I bring that up is because it's astonishing to re- suddenly realize how much noise Trumpism mm-hmm. w- was in our lives. Like it was, it was all encompassing. This gets to your point, Stephanie, is that it was all encompassing. You could never escape it. It was the real, the news was relentless and it was always bad news. It was mm-hmm. always for, for four years, loud, bad news yelled in your ear for four fucking years. It reminds me of being one of those guys that like the, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, Guantanamo Bay, like in one of those cells, just having like noise blasted at you for 24 hours hours a day and and like there is no escape from it and as from an lgbtq perspective or trans people i just can't even imagine what that feels like i remember how it felt for me right after the election and i i wrote an article about this i'll put it in the show notes really detailing the sort of experience the experience i had coming to terms with this but it was like getting punched in the stomach it was like holy shit it would it it undermined what I thought America was like my thought, and that was very destabilizing in a way that I didn't expect it to be. Right? It was it wasn't just like I lost an election. We lost an election to Bush too. That sucked, right? But it didn't completely destabilize my sort of concept of what America is and my identity with respect to America, right? Especially having grown up in an all white environment, like all of a sudden it was like these white people that I grew up with, that I loved, that were my friends, that were, they voted for this shithead. They voted for, what? That's like an identity attacking like experience. If you see what you see what I mean? I remember being at a bar with you uh, near Union Square shortly after the election, and you were talking about how even in Manhattan, it felt different to be a black man sitting on the sidewalk drinking a beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other right, the other thing that we're sort of talking about is everyone's personal agency felt as though it was attacked, whether yeah. you're a person of color or a woman. It's, it's sort of, you know, it just it doesn't feel safe to exist in that way. Exactly. Um, And so I remember talking to you about that in the middle of one of the most liberal cities in the whole world. Um, Yeah. yeah. On the street of Jersey City, right? Some guy called me the N-word, right? This is like right after the election. And the racists were emboldened. He was this wasted white dude, like, you know, looking kind of like a finance guy. And he followed me around. Like me and my friend Jeff were at a bar and we're watching a Rangers game. And watching it together, it's funny that we were at a bar inside just blows my mind at this point in my life. (laughs) Jesus Christ, we were inside at a bar, like in a crowded bar, like it's like that's like flight or flight mode now i'm like oh my god that's fucking dangerous you know um but this guy this guy came up to my came up to my came up to my table and he's like where do you live man wasted and i and i've done this for a long time i know when a white wasted guy is coming up to me and looking to poke and try to get a reaction from me it's like i know it i can feel it and i knew what i knew what was going on here even jeff picked up on it and 
we went later on, like hours later, hours later, the game's over. I'm walking down the street and here he comes. Here comes Mr. Mr. C and he starts getting up in my face and telling me that, like, why do I live in Jersey City? Do I live in Jersey? How long have I lived in Jersey City? Asking me these questions that are like, and I'm just like, and I just like pushed him, pushed him away. And then he called me the N word, you know, and this was in Jersey City. This was not in rural middle of no fucking bump of fuck play. This was in Jersey City, New Jersey, ultra liberal. And like I said, like this sense of feeling unsafe. I can only imagine being a trans person, especially a um, uh, 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 male to female trans, who, who, uh, black male to female trans. That is like basically like your life expectancy is short. Um, the shortest. Shortest life statistically. expectancy, statistically speaking, because yeah. I can only imagine being in that space over the last four years. I can only imagine what that must have been like, you know. And like you said, it's not over. It's not, it's not over. Let's be clear. It's not over. I wanted to share something just about my experience as a white man, because Go theoretically, yeah, right, please. I mean, Trump should have been like he was on, on my side. Right. I mean, he's like supports the white man. He's like. But for me, I experienced a different kind of a fear. And that was that uh, I always really wanted to stand up for equality, for cosmopolitanism, mm -hmm. for globalism, mm -hmm. for progress. And you have been for a long, long, long time doing those things. Yeah. And I'm Mr. Star Trek. I want everybody to get along. I want us all to be <laughs> to, to be to be equal. Right. And so yeah. suddenly I had to be a little bit more afraid to express those points of view, because mm -hmm. do you know who white supremacists hate even worse than black people? Oh, I know. They um, hate white people who defend black people. Right. Yes. Because because we're we, N word lover. We are an N-word lover and, and we make them into hypocrites. We, we isolate them. We, we are the biggest threat to them because we have all of their privilege, but we don't agree and we're going to fight them, right? Like I would put my life on the line to fight them. And, right. but that started to feel actually real like that. And then there were people who were friends and family who'd formerly been liberals turned, turned mm -hmm. toward Trumpism. And so that caused a schism, very personal schism in my mm -hmm. life. And so right. that, that was a lot. There was a lot of trauma related to that and a lot of really long conversations that shouldn't have needed to even have been had with people who were beginning to sympathize with Trumpism. And that was that was that was fucking traumatic, man. I got to tell you, and I'm still not you know, those relationships have not been repaired. Yeah, yeah. It's tough. Right. I mean, yeah, in terms of those relationships, man, and like this is what you were saying, Stephanie and 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 Sean, you're saying the same thing is that has been the toughest thing. I mean, like with the relationships that uh, it's I, even me trying to come to terms with people who are my friends, but who are not anti-racists. Right. Mm -hmm. Because then now I make that demand of my friends. Right. Like I'm not interested in being friends with you if you're not going to do this, because it, that might have been on the back burner in the past. But since Trumpism, it got pushed right to the front burner. Right. And forget it. And, and, say, and, and then you have these even harder relationships with family members. Right. It's like, mm -hmm. Jesus, how do you navigate that? Right. So it's tough. It's really, really tough. And um, uh, and, and, you know, to your point, Sean, I feel the similarly in terms of feminism, right? Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I know you do too. If you stand up for women, you can be sure that you are going to be called names, right? You're going to be right. And this is not to put myself and be like, oh my God, I'm the, I'm the victim here. But like, but still, but nevertheless, the point is, is that like, it takes courage to be an ally, a real ally, right? A real ally. And that means confronting people when they say bigoted stuff, right? I can be in a locker room. And this is one of the, this, I, this is the example I use a lot, a locker room uh, playing hockey, right? And it's just like 
it's 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 uh, it's anti-gay slurs and 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 misogyny flying around uh, right at like at open hockey or whatever. And being willing to say at that point, like in the moment, in real time, nah, man, that's not fucking cool. You know, because like and most people, frankly, are are not as confrontational as they think they are. And they usually just shut up. But there's all but there might be one guy. There might be one who's 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 going to give you a hard time. And so I'm just sort of sort of, I think, just uh, reiterating your point a little bit there, Sean. But I think it's an important one. You know, I think it's an important one. Um, so, well, look, so that was, I think, a really a good and fruitful conversation. Um, you know, I, I uh, it, it was it's really important, I think, for us to reflect on that. And I think uh, especially, Stephanie, your point is that it's OK, everybody out there to still feel like we are winding down or that there's still a lot of things to be worried about, especially my fear, like you said, is in the, in the courts more than anything else. They, they are completely, completely, uh, you know, unaccountable, unaccountable to us. There's nothing we can do about it. Right. Nothing we can do is that we can we can make legislation or or amend the Constitution, which we know is absolutely off the table. So um, here we are. You know, we, we, we could barely even pass COVID relief, let alone fucking change the Constitution. That's not right. on the table. <laughs> you know? right. That's not on the table. Um, OK, so let's get into our main topic for today. And that is going to be or I guess we do have this other news piece, uh, but we really got into it. But I, you know what? Let me let's just touch this real quick. And I, I just want to talk about uh the the trauma well we talked about trauma but i i want to talk about like the specific idea that uh trump's words were consistent with those of an abuser um and like do you think stephanie that that is like overkill right like to call his language and the gaslighting like like consistent with like an abusive relationship no i think that's very accurate um, mm -hmm. because it is gaslighting. It's all out lying, right? He'd say, right. I didn't say that. And then a newscaster would say, here's a video of you saying that. No, literally saying it. So, you know, <laughs> um, what's really interesting is I had a client at the time going through a pretty messy divorce where we came, well, she came to terms with the fact that it was a very abusive relationship. And I used Trump as the example mm. to get her to see how toxic this relationship was and get her to understand this is what an abusive relationship mirrors. This is what it's like. Um, and I think and I'm, this sounds a little narcissistic. I don't intend it to, but I that was before everyone started to talk about Trump in the way that, oh, this is, you know, sort of emulating what an abusive relationship was. Mm -hmm. But or maybe it's just people in the field. We knew that. And it was right. a, actually a way I found in this particular case, it was helpful as a metaphor for someone actually living in an abusive relationship to go, wow. oh, yeah, that is what happens in my house. That's really not OK, you know, um, because they could recognize it on this larger scale. And so I, I happen to think it's a completely accurate description. Interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah, I, I really love those insights because, uh, for, and, you know, because it's I think that it's so easy to 
because I don't spend my time in other people's heads in the same way that you do. Right. Like I, I it's, it, it's easy to think that like, Oh no, this is just me or, or that I'm not, maybe I'm blowing things out of perspective. Um, uh, I have been in my share of toxic relationships in my life. Right. Um, you know, of most of them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. and, 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 um, and though they've never been uh, like so like so that abusive, but uh, but I but the patterns of unhealthy behavior, I can see the reflect like the reflection in how Trump is and how he basically treated how he tr- how he treats his subordinates for fuck's sake. I mean, right? He just like he browbeats them, right? And this uh, and and it's like this int- this complete loyalty. And if you don't and, and and but that loyalty that he does not owe back at all. Right. And it is like quintessential. I'm I'm an abusive husband type feeling to it, you know, or abusive father. I have something to add to that. And that is yeah. the kind of language where one of the things that you hear from abusers a, a lot is like, I'm the only one who, who could ever love you. Yeah. No one else will. Ex- no one else will ever will ever love you like I do. And that's kind of like when Trump said, I alone can fix it. Mm-hmm. He essentially right. was. And, and then the other thing the abusers do is they isolate their victim from all other outside authority. Right. Mm-hmm. So you see that in Trump breaking down all the institutions. It's like if a court would rule against him instead of saying, oh, well, I lost that one. He would go like, well, that court sucks or that court mm-hmm. is biased or that's a Democrat judge or whatever. And even to the point of his saying that he could kill someone on, on Fifth Avenue. OK, a lot of abusers will tell their victims, if you if you go to the police, I'll kill you. And they try to get in between the victim and the law that could save them. And as a matter of fact, they will say things like, if you ever try to leave, I will kill you and I will kill the children. And we mm-hmm. see these sorts of events happen all over the country all the time where uh, a man will kill his fa- entire family and kill himself rather than s- submit to the rule of law or or take accountability for what happened. And that is that is the entire essence of the Trump presidency is that he, you know, even to the point now after he's not president anymore, the Screen Actors Guild tried to hold him accountable and 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 kick him out of the guild. And he's like, who cares? Right. Mm-hmm. You're not the boss of me. And it's like he's not accountable to anyone. And that is the abuser uh, profile in spades. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's a that's such a great analogy, and and right, and you you talked about how the abuser can hold the kids hostage, essentially, right, and say like, look, I will hurt the kids. I won't I won't pay for X, Y, and Z. I'll I'll stop paying for that if you leave me. If you say if you if you report me, and uh, Trump held literally the United States hostage, right? He said, look, I am the king of the United States right now. I will tear this shit down if you don't do exactly what I do. And he's held the entire Republican Party hostage. And he's Mm -hmm. still holding the entire Republican Party hostage as we speak. They Mm -hmm. cannot walk away because he has a gun to their fucking head, to the the head of their uh, their constituents. He He essentially is holding a gun to their constituents and saying, look, do what I say or... I, I'll turn these people away. I'll turn these people away like that, you know? And it's sick. It's sick, but that is it, that's such a great analogy. I'm glad we went back to that. I was gonna I was gonna skip it. I was gonna skip it, but I was like, nah, let's do it. I'm glad we did it. It was worth it. The payoff was <laughs> the payoff was there. The payoff was there. Okay, okay, okay. Now let's get into our um into our discussion of diet culture, body image, and how that interacts with social justice. Um 
I want to first, though, just get a little bit of background on you, Stephanie. Why the hell should we take you seriously? <laughs> Fair point, because <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. Uh, yeah. Well, no, but for <laughs> listeners, I am a cisgendered, thin white woman. So um, that's a fair point, And I think that should be pointed out. Um, so why should you take me seriously? I feel like this is my life's work. Um, I'm really passionate about it. I myself have recovered from an eating disorder. So I have a lot of firsthand knowledge. Um, and then as a professional in the eating disorder world, I will tell you it is so white. Um, mm -hmm. and that's a problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, um, if we all three of us close our eyes and picture what we think of as a person with an eating disorder, I imagine both of you will give me an image of a white woman. Yep. That's exactly Overly right. thin thigh gap, yep. the whole bit, yep. you know? Yep. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I see. <laughs> yes. And that's statistically so wrong, but that's the image we get because white women are, you know, privileged and, um, taken more seriously and they're the thin ideal and all of that. So, um, interesting, interesting, but to be honest, I think you, sh I think I should be taken seriously, but I don't want to take the voice away from mm. other people who live in larger bodies or, um, are, you know, professionals and people of color. Uh, it's a, it's something I navigate all the time, sort of, is this my, you know, talk to have, is this my place to speak? Uh, it's an interesting problem because the field is filled with mostly white people. And part of that is because it's very costly to get graduate degrees right. and, um, the interest, 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 oh, wow, is really high. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so that in itself is a conflict I internally have. That's sure. my answer. I'll bet. I'll bet. And uh, and th th that said, I have known you a long time, and I you, I remember uh, when I was getting ready to go to college after my um, after my beginning to recovering from drug addiction and and all those problems that uh, I was going to Essex County College here in New Jersey and you were going to Jersey City University interestingly yes. because I am now in Jersey City University yes. I live in Jersey City um but but you've but, but like but just talk to talk to us about like your trajectory from there to where you are now because I mean uh, you're an LCSW um highly trained uh what were the the steps that you had to take to get there and why did you take the social route and talk to us about why you took the social work route as opposed to a more uh, like psychology route? So, uh, I mean, I went to a four-year college. Um, yes, I went to Jersey City University. Um, and then I, when I, and I studied criminal justice there. And I was working in Newark at a center for parolees. Um, it was also when Cory Booker was running for mayor of Newark and we, uh, we helped out with that campaign. That was one of the projects we did and it was awesome. And now I always think back upon that very fondly. I'm a big Cory Booker fan. <laughs> um, but I had a supervisor who sort of pulled me aside and said, you know, you're so good individually and you really look at a person. And, you know, at that time, my sort of role was to help, um, help people find employment. And so I, 
did take that seriously. And I would say, oh, Home Depot will hire people who have um, a record. Let's go to that Home Depot in this town because they have openings. And um, it was my supervisor who said, you know, I think you should not get a, and I was considering getting a graduate degree in criminal justice. Um, and she said, I think you are really good at, you know, identifying with people and helping them out. And it, social work is probably the route you should go. And truthfully, it was just her opinion. And I said, that sounds good. <laughs> I was really young. I didn't I made, do much I research. Made, I made a lot of decisions that way too, back then. You're just like, all right, let's try that out. And then that was like a lifelong choice, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah. And I went in thinking I was going to do advocacy. That was my thought. And I had my first year internship also at a criminal justice center in Harlem, and I, I wasn't cut out for advocacy. It's to kind of circle back. I am the person I just shut down. I like mm -hmm. I get really frustrated. Don't you people see this is so wrong. We have this doesn't make any sense. And I didn't have the wherewithal emotionally to do it. I, I maybe now as someone who's on the brink of being 40, I would and I would have better resources. But um, so I switched to a clinical social work route and. Um, and I stayed the course. Mm -hmm. It's something I question myself all the time about is why I didn't get a PhD. Um, and my honest answer is I don't think at the time I thought I was capable of doing that. Mm. Um, and I didn't have people around me who suggested it because I had previously struggled in school also because of my share of doing some uh, amount of drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and I just didn't think I was capable of it. And it is something I regret. And I think about getting a PhD now. Um, but I also think that's my ego and it's probably unnecessary. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. that's yeah. my long winded. No, that's exactly what I was hoping for. I just wanted to talk to you about your journey because I mean, I know it, but, um, but I, uh, but still I haven't, we haven't talked about this in the context of us being almost 40, right? We've, we've <laughs> talked, we've, we've talked about this at age 25 and age, age 30, but that's different at being at age 40. Um, and this, at this stage of our careers, and I can definitely identify with the, this idea of like, wow, uh, could I have made some different choices in the past? Right. Um, what do, did I need to go to the school I went to and, and, and acquire loans or on the other hand, do I, uh, you know, uh, um, or, or could I have gone more of an academic route? Right. Um, and like you, I had incredibly low self-esteem in terms of my ability to do well in school at all. Cause I spent most of my life doing terribly in school. Right. right? So, so, <laughs> so I like my, 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 I shot low, right. Because I, I didn't want to over, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I didn't, yeah. you know, like, anyway, we've talked about this, but I think that's important. And I think that, I think that people can look at you and see all that, what you've accomplished in your life and, and, and how far you've gotten in a, and, and what you're doing today and say like, oh, wow, right, that must have been easy, or look, this is how she always was, or whatever. But I think it's important for folks, and this is why I want to ask this question, because I get this about myself a lot too, right? I haven't, where I am and my, where I went to school and 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 how, what the, the my occupation, it's easy, I think, for folks to, to think that that was obvious or easy or 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 there what isn't crippling self doubt. You know what right. I mean? Uh, that is like a huge <laughs> part of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but um, 
Look, so I, I also um, want to talk to you briefly about your business, too, because you're not just a therapist. Uh, you are also a business owner. So um, and you run a group practice. So what inspired you to do that? And is there like do you have like a mission statement? Like what do you want to try to accomplish? Or is it just something you like to do? So, well, one of the um, I am definitely someone who sort of leaps and then says, oh, shit, that's where I'm jumping to. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, why I did it, truthfully, I was getting a lot of referrals and I couldn't take them all on. And I love supervising people through some of the um, postgraduate trainings I've done. Mm -hmm. I've become a supervisor uh, at a psychoanalytic institute, and I love supervising people. Um, and so I thought, you know, let me sort of look into hiring someone to work under me that I would supervise and help them get their clinical hours, postgraduate school. Um, and I hired a fantastic person. I think that they are amazing. I really like supervising them. Um, and they have a specialty that I don't, they work within the intersection of eating disorders in the queer community. Mm -hmm. So I learned from them, um, as well. And they started getting so many referrals and people were saying, Oh, there's no one who really has the specialty of working, you know, with, with in the queer community and eating disorders. And, um, they sort of filled up. And then I, of course, know that there is among people of color, they're severely underserved in the eating disorder community. And I thought, okay, maybe I could start a group practice or maybe I could build this group practice to also work with people from marginalized communities that don't receive proper eating disorder treatment or can't find therapists who have some of the similar lived experience that they have. Um, and it kind of and so that's in a way my mission. I don't know if I have a full mission statement mm -hmm. there, but I've become really passionate about that. Um, and so my practice right now is pretty diverse, which I love. Um, and we all get to learn from each other, which is cool too, even though I maybe am a more senior clinician by years and, and education, um, they have so much to teach me also, which is really awesome. That's so, that's so great. I, that, that's so great because I mean, it's so rare that we're able to do something that we're really passionate about, right? And something that is, it ticks the boxes and, 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 and right, I, I get up, we, we, this is late capitalism, this is, this is neoliberalism, this is a lot of things. And that means work is frequently brutal. And it is, you get overworked, and it's not doing something that is very meaningful, right? That doesn't feel good to do. And it's really great that you're able to do that. I think a lot of the reasons why Sean and I do this show every week, right, is is because it, it, it makes us feel that we are addressing the sort of issues that we think actually fucking matter, right? Social justice um, and uh, in, in particular, I think. Uh, do you agree with that, Sean? Well, it's certainly, uh, it's a way for us to take our knowledge and what we've learned in our lives and through our course of study, which for me, mine didn't end with college. I mean, as a matter of fact, most of what I, what I, know today is from my own reading and study, particularly in the realm of evolutionary psychology and, mm -hmm. and, and understanding, you know, what we know about what science can tell us about being human is, mm -hmm. is, is so much now of what I'm interested in and being able to talk about that to an audience is, is great. And then it's also a little bit of therapy because 
right? I mean, I have a therapist, but this is this is therapy because I get to talk to to you, Christoph, and and whoever our guests are about some of these things that are really that are just really troubling. They're existential questions for us, and so mm-hmm. you know, I find I just find it incredibly valuable that way. I would do it if nobody was listening. Yeah, I agree. Can and I? If, go, uh, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was no, going to say, wait, this is a great moment. Um, this is one of my favorite distinctions. It's therapeutic, but it's not therapy. Which is a really ah, important ah. distinction. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> there. That, see, this is why we have this is why we have pros uh, on. And 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 look, we another thing that you mentioned that is learning from each other. I think that I, I know that I've learned a ton from you, Sean, over the years. Um, and I think that we learn from each other on the show. I think that we learn from our guests. Uh, and just the, and and the and the process of what I'm hearing is the process of self-betterment, I think, is part of this too, right? And that, that's what, like, edu- you can do that through formal education, you can do that through informal education, uh, and you can do that through having conversations like this. And that is sort of furthering knowledge, furthering um, like a pa- our capacity to sort of empathize with people and connect with people. And I think that is like, that is sorely lacking. And it's really lacking on the right, uh, which is almost like, right, explicitly trying not to understand other people's experience, right? Because that's that's just not valuable to them in some way. Um, and uh, so I, that, so anyway, I think that's I think that's important. I think that's real important. Now, well, one of the things that's happened yeah, here is that we've seen where what used to be just considered a matter of politics has morphed into a questions of ethics. And mm-hmm. so that's why mm-hmm. where people used to be able to say, well, I don't, you know, I don't really like to talk about politics or, or, and, and they would, they would deflect in that way. Now it's become um, almost a sign of, you know, of being, of, of being antisocial. Like if you, if, if you refuse to engage with politics these days, you're essentially turning a blind eye ethically to what's going on in the country. And so I think that's what's different is that there's still people who are trying to go back to that old thing where we all we all can just kind of get along without discussing these things. And it's never going to happen. We are we, we have crossed the Rubicon. The Trump era broke that part of America. And now you have to take a stand. You have to take a side. And yeah. that's, I think, what's really different. And maybe that's a good thing. I think it is a good thing. I mean, one thing, I mean, I like, I, as I keep saying, Stephanie and I have known each other for years. I know Stephanie's family. And one thing that uh, that has always been like Stephanie's dad, politics is part of the Roth family, right? Like that yes. is, it's in the DNA. It's, it's every, it's part of every single conversation. It is right. It's like, you really can't go more than a few hours without somehow politics coming up. Right. Yes. And, and that political, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Competency, the ability to, or uh, to be able to talk at least to some extent to know generally what's going on is something that is now hard to ignore to your point, Sean, right? Like the, the Trump, the Trump era broke that. I agree with it, you. Like you can't not think about it. I mean, it's literacy. It's literally, it's literacy. literacy. That's the word I was yeah. looking for. Literacy. I was looking for. That's the word I was looking for. I have, um, not in my family, my partner's family, some family members who refuse to talk about politics. And it's mm. shocking every time. And it's infuriating. <laughs> we went over to their house the day after RBG died and no one mentioned it. And I, I, I still can't even formulate how it felt. I was I'm like, these people live under a rock. Right. Are they, you know, but what it does to kind of also circle back, right, is it makes me feel unsafe around them because I think if yes. you're not talking yes. about politics. Yes you're sort of on the other side, let's say. Um, and that would be, in my, that's in my opinion, the only reason not to talk about politics is because you're ashamed or hiding your view. Um, yep. 
and that's people. Such a good point. Yeah, it's the old, so. it's the, it's the old uh, Ellie Wiesel um, quote about, you know, silence uh, favors, neutrality favors the oppressor. And right. it, mm -hmm. it also goes along with right. a, a Rush song, which is called Free Will. And in that song, there, there is the lyric, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Yep, that's right. And these people mm -hmm. are choosing not to decide. And so they're casting their lot in with the oppressor. That's just, it's just open and shut. There's no exceptions. That's exactly yeah, right. And, I agree. And, and you can't, you can't, oppressors cannot oppress without that group of people who are willing to turn a blind eye, right? Like that is, that is, that is like that big chunk in the middle that are just willing to like, ah, oh, you know what? I just don't want to think about it. I just want to think about my kids or my job or whatever else, all, all of which are important things for sure. But but the but the unwillingness to confront the ugly truth of 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 what's going on is allow what is exactly what allows oppressors to oppress. Um, so anyway, uh, let's get into diet culture very specifically. Anyone who follows you, uh, who knows you, Stephanie, or follows you on Instagram, knows that you're no fan of diets or diet culture. So let's talk about what do you mean by diet culture and what's your beef with it. So diet culture, there's a uh, Christy Harrison who wrote a book called Anti-Diet really is the person who um, defines this. And I wish I could come up with the quote at the moment, but it, it will probably come to me as we talk. Uh, diet culture is, so the diet industry is a $70 billion industry um, and diets were created by white men. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at all of the historic diets and BMI was created by a white man who wasn't even researching bodies. Um, so what diet culture is, is the culture that basically steals us of our, it's not dissimilar from religion, right? That makes you think you're doing something right or wrong. Um, and it idealizes thinness and it mm -hmm. idealizes whiteness. Um, and Diet culture, I mean, diet culture is everywhere, right? So it, but it is the idea that um, really, if you're not thin, you're doing something wrong. And it's hard to talk about diet culture without also talking about fat phobia um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. the two are so intertwined and connected. And so, again, it just puts thin, generally thin white women, but thinness on a pedestal and really stigmatizes anyone who is not that. That's really, really interesting. And I did not know that about the uh, BMI index and about all the, about the, about the, basically the invention of diet. But of course, that's the answer to that question. Of fucking course it is. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and uh, Sean, um, talk, to, I, I wonder, Sean, do you know anything? You are the resident uh, evolutionary psychology expert. What do you think about fat phobia and evolutionary psychology? Is there an evolutionary basis? for why why people tend to hate like be well, like the, re the resistant to that it's actually the opposite because if you look throughout history okay i mean we humans have dealt with famine famine has been mm -hmm. the major enemy of humanity for most of human history it, it's only been the last few thousand years that we've got rid of famine and it's still not gone a lot of places in the world there are still people dealing with famines and famine is of course a weapon of war so what that means is that from an evolutionary standpoint, people who had a few extra pounds had an advantage. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're storing calories. That's the whole reason we get fat because what, what you don't consume, what your body doesn't consume, it turns into fat cells, which right. are rich with energy. They can be then br- later broken down back into glucose that your body can use. So you have the situation where, where having a little, a few extra pounds is, is, is a huge advantage. People would not survive famines if you're, if you were as thin as what the ideal is today. So, um, and, and what the other thing I want to say about the beauty ideal is it was more about a ratio than about a specific, uh, weight. So Mm. someone could be considered very beautiful if they had the bust to, to, to hips to waist ratio, uh, even if they were heavy. So, and I think the same is true today. I think you see a lot of the, the body shaming that goes on has to do mainly with women who have fat stomachs. And who don't have, you know, because if they mm-hmm. have, if they have, if they're busty and, and, and they got a big ass and a thin waist, even if they weigh, you know, 200 pounds, it's okay. And so right. you, you, you see that you, you see a lot of that in, you know, baby got back, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. there's, so there, there are, there, it's not as uh, open and shut as just thin versus fat. There's a whole sure. bunch of other dynamics that goes along with that. And it's also cultural. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But what's interesting is that also the thin ideal really, because Sean, what you're saying is, is true, right? And if we look back in history, there was a time where being more curvy and fuller bodied was really um, what was attractive. But if you look at when Twiggy and things like that came out, it was also right after women got the right to vote. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's hard to have the knowledge of history and say, oh, there's something you know, once you start to realize where this all came from, it's a, it's oppressive. It's really an oppressive system. And it is a way to keep women, um, you know, occupied and focused on something other than, you know, being successful or being doing, just, you know, whatever. Doing, what, doing um, what men do. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, that's really interesting. I, I never made that connection. Man, I'm so glad we're having this conversation because I didn't make that connection directly, uh, but certainly not between voting and 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 uh, and body image. But even just the the, the social, the patriarchy elements of this. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 uh, it's funny. I'll be uh, it, I hope Lindsay doesn't mind, but I'll be I'm the laundry guy at the house. Right. So like <laughs> I, I'm, I'm always doing laundry. I, my life is laundry. Right. I mean, <laughs> and look, I know I don't have any kids. Like you're you're looking at me right now. You're like, <laughs> you think your <laughs> life is fucking laundry. <laughs> right. yeah, but, yeah. But look, so my so laundry's on my mind all the time. So I'm always like going through, you know, look through underwear. I'm like, wait, Lindsay, this is your underwear, you know? And I'm like, you know, this is what and 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 like or 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 the or women's shoes. And I'm like, wait, these are your shoes? What, like what and and Lindsay's pretty practical, right? She like she doesn't she doesn't yeah. buy buy into all the bullshit, but still sometimes we'll put on a pair of shoes and I'm like, what you're gonna wear those all day. And the point is like all of these systems, right, or these like sort of structures placed on women. To sort of to to keep a like you say keep them occupied, but also it seems to me like 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 always running after a beauty standard that men control, right? It is like it, and, right. and and then that and and abortion, uh, right? Anti-abortion, all this stuff is like let's see how we can control women, and and I'm sure the backlash just like when when black people get votes, um, get 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 uh, get move forward, the 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 white lash is like hardcore right trumpism is a it was a white lash backlash to to obama and i imagine like you said after women get the right to vote suffrage all of a sudden you probably see a lot of this stuff started getting piled on yes And the other thing, you can't really talk about diet culture without talking about white supremacy right because Mm -hmm. um 
And there's a wonderful book called Fearing the Black Body by Dr. Mm. Sabrina Strings. Um, that actually, Sean, if you like reading about this stuff, it sounds like you, this would be up your alley because it's really an academic read, but it's it's fantastic. Um, but it also talks a lot about how thinness began to distinguish, right, like white women from black women um, and how, you know, it, we made this comment earlier about the cultural um, s- sort of the way that culture plays into this too. And, um, you know, I always think about this. If you are a white person who is wealthy and you give your kid juice, you're doing something great and that's healthy and that's wonderful. And you made juice, but if you are a poor black woman giving your kid juice, then you're, you know, ruining their lives and they're going to be fat. And that's so high in sugar. And, um, but even I bet, as I told this story, both of you probably pictured like celery juice from a juicer. And then I don't know, uh, well, I see be, or whatever it is. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are the images. It's so immense. Like I appreciate you calling it out, right? Because yeah. these are these are images that I like, I don't even think about them consciously. But in retrospect, as you say that, I'm like, yeah, oh yeah, that's absolutely what came up to came up in my in my mind, you know? Well, and it just you, goes to show how this stuff is internalized, right? Mm-hmm. When you think about what it, you know, what a juicer costs and what mm-hmm. it costs to buy fresh vegetables and fruits all the time and 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 how there are food deserts in certain parts where it's not even available you 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 know if you're thinking about somebody who's making juice or smoothies it's a freaking white wealthy neighborhood and 100 so you know and 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 if and and the the people of color in the food deserts are feeding their kids sodas not right 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 or, or the juice that's like, right, like, uh, like high C, like you said, right? like, you know, yeah. juice, junk, junk juice, <laughs> junk juice. Yeah. But, you know, and, and it becomes a cultural problem. Right. And, and is that right? And then I say this all the time is that it shocks me that conservatives, I mean, I think it's bad faith or lack of, of lack of, of reasoning skills, but are shocked when people behave and grow up to be exactly in like the environment in which they grew up in, right? Like, which is like, how is that shocking to you? Like, how are you, why are you surprised that someone who grew up eating fast food, not being properly, not being in a a shitty education system where perhaps they didn't even have heat in their fucking classroom, they maybe didn't even have fucking heat in their classroom. Or books, by the way. Or books, or books, let alone multimedia, anything, right? And going to eating eating McDonald's, like, and then you, why would you expect that person to then not do the same thing with their kids? Like, sure, someone might not do that. And that's rare though, right? I am a lot like my parents. And I suspect that all of us are a lot Mm -hmm. like the, the environment in which we grew up in. It's not surprising. It's not surprising. And how do you break that cycle i mean raising people up right you raise people up uh minimum wage all the things that we that we all know are like that that we that we can point to that work you know yeah yeah anyway um rant over i guess um <laughs> let's so let's uh move on and oh yeah so oh yeah i want to specifically ask you what's noom Noom. Uh, I, I get I get Noom commercials well, every fucking day. First of all, what the fuck is Noom? Like What's I've seen Noom? the commercials. What is it? <laughs> oh, yeah. you have seen the commercial, Sean? Or I, not? I have seen. I've seen them, but I don't have any I- fucking idea what it is. Is it a, is it a a product? Is it a system? What the fuck is it? So Noom is the, in some ways a really great example of how pervasive diet culture is because um, as people are recognizing diet culture. And as that's a term, you know, in everyone's sort of vernacular at the moment, mm-hmm. um, 
obviously these industry people come and sort of co-opt what they think is you know, moving away from that. And so Noom is the example. Noom is the example that everyone in this anti-diet um, community uses because it's, uh, it pretends it's not a diet. So it'll say, oh, I feel so good. I feel so energized. But really the goal of Noom is to lose weight. And Noom served an ad to me recently where they had a ice cream with, I think like peanut butter on it or something. And then they said, well, you don't have to eat this. You can have freedom to eat. And then the next image was like chia seeds and a banana with maybe like a dollop of yogurt. Right. And I was like, those two are not the same thing. If you're not the ice cream, <laughs> eat the fucking ice cream, first of all. But don't try and fool me to right. say that I'll be as satisfied if I want ice cream eating chia seeds. I won't. <laughs> no one will. Um, Literally nobody will. Right. <laughs> right. But that's that's noon. But they, they sort of do it under this guise of it's right. not a diet. It's a lifestyle. It's so yeah. freeing. You know, you can eat whatever you want within these, you know, parameters, which again, that's diet culture. If you're telling me, I then have to think about the fact that I want ice cream and then spend all of this time finding a substitution that will never satisfy me. I've now spent so much time getting to fucking chia seeds. And then by the end of the night, I still want the ice cream also. That's also what the research shows. Right. It's not like the craving goes away. Right. Right. It's really interesting because what it is, is it's something for nothing. It's like you can you can get this result while giving up nothing, but it's really a lie. And and a lot of that, I, I, it's a little bit of a diversion here, but, you know, the whole issue with low fat foods where mm-hmm. they essentially replace the fat in foods with sugar and it ended up actually creating a bigger <laughs> obesity crisis. Right, there's, right. A, there's a book that's called uh, Sugar, Salt, Fat, and it talks about the, the triangle between uh, those, those three and how, how that has interacted with the diet industry and everything else like that. And I don't know if you, if you know about that book or if you have anything. I've heard of that book, but I can't, I can't, um, I can't say that I've read it. I don't know that I've, I've read, read it. I've read it either. It- I've heard about it, but. But it speaks to that, too, because all of these diets, you know, the research shows this over and over again, which is also amazing that people still diet and still um, it's such a successful industry. But, you know, I think it's something like 85 percent of people regain the weight they lost in a diet within a year and then something like 90 percent within like five years or those are not the exact statistics. But um, the weight loss is not sustainable when it happens in the form of diet culture, right? Because to use this example, if someone wants ice cream, it's not sustainable to eat chia seeds every day. You're going to want the ice cream and this is where binging and overeating kind of happen. Um, But yeah, so the low fat thing um, also left people feeling greatly unsatisfied because we need fat to feel satiated. Mm. Um, So- I wonder, I wonder as I'm listening, you know, I I am, thinking about eating disorders and I'm thinking about addiction and I'm thinking about how right diet culture informs those problems right because now, now you know hear me out so it seems to me that if uh, this is the thing we talk about in terms of religion all the time that religion is like as if there's like there's this magic ledger out there somewhere right and that you do good things and the, you know, the good ledger goes up and you do bad things in the bad le- and and, and the, or the bad ledger goes up and like and it's like some sort of cosmic thing and like it seems like dieting is very simple and although it might actually be a real ledger that you're that you're dealing with right but the bottom line is that you're supposed to feel guilt 
it's a guilt-based system, right? The idea mm-hmm. is like, that's the entire fucking shebang. And so now what do you do when you feel guilty about your about yourself? You punish yourself, right? Is that how you get to eating disorder? I mean, is that how you, because that's certainly how addiction, addiction can work, like real, like like a, a, a chemical addiction can work. What, what, how do you, how do you think about that? So similar to addiction in a lot of ways, there is a genetic component to eating disorders, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean that everyone who has those genetics will get an eating disorder, but it also means that it's not as simple as sort of the description that you just gave, but that uh-huh. is uh-huh. one route to eating disorder, uh, to, you know, sort of a diagnostic, um, eating disorder, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, because also if you think about it, it does create this right or wrong, good or bad, even in the way we talk about food, like um, it was great, Sean, you said junk juice, right? So if I'm mm. eating junk juice, I then have to, what's the association I'm telling myself? I shouldn't have mm. this junk. Am I bad for eating it? There's something better I could be eating. Um, and again, this gets really complicated when you don't have access financially mm. or otherwise to those quote unquote better foods. Um But yeah, specifically with eating disorders, it does often start a lot with wanting to be healthy. Um, Mm. And then that creates its own problem because people identify health as thinness, which is Mm. always sort of, you know, they say, I want to be healthy, but what they mean is I want to be thin. Right. Um, Right. But in our culture, and this is where diet culture is so pervasive, that when people say healthy, we all think, well, we might not consciously think thin, but that's what we picture. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a whole thing where a a lot of women, especially if they have, you know, a borderline BMI, they'll go to the doctor for a checkup. The doctor will tell them you need to lose weight. Oh yeah. Like hardcore. Like you're, you're putting your heart at risk. You're doing this, you're doing that. And, and some, some women who I've talked to, who've gone through that, like they're fine. They they don't need like, they're, they're going to be fine. There are plenty, they're, they're in a normal size range for, for Americans. And now I know that America is generally obese, uh, compared to a lot of other countries that have more traditional diets. But at the same point, um, it's not to the level where a doctor should be telling a woman that she's super unhealthy when she's, you know, a few pounds over. But even if it is to that level, if you lead with that, it's, I, I often always say like, um, that fat phobia is the last ism that's sort of publicly allowed, right? Like you don't get the same treatment. Um, I had a, I'm working with someone who hurt their knee in a very specific way. And they were terrified to go to the doctor because they thought the doctor is going to tell me I need to lose weight. However, my knee has been perfectly fine for years. I did this very specific thing. It, I felt it, it got injured and you know, we worked hard to find a doctor who was um, what's called health at every size informed so that he or she could look at the patient and go, oh, it's your knee, not that you're fat, because that's what happens. That's what you're describing, Sean, too, is it becomes that you don't get good health care. You mm-hmm. get prescribed a diet right. and they don't look further than that. Right. It just yeah. goes to show how pervasive this is within even the medical community, um, yeah. like in our, in our, in our culture, in our society. Uh, and, and of course, black women uh, who, uh, with, with bigger bodies or women with bigger bodies in general um, are going to be, it's, it's just like, what a, like almost like emotional prison to be in. 
right? Like, you it's, know? it's so funny because when I was younger, I mean, I, this is probably 20, 25 years ago or whatever. And I read an article and it was by, it was, it was a guy talking about his wife who was, you know, I don't know what she weighed, but she was fairly a lot heavier than what would be considered normal or traditionally attractive. And he was writing this article and he said, I love my wife. I love the way she looks. I love her body. And I'm not going to apologize for that. And I was like, it was the first time like something switched on in my head because remember, mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up in the in the 70s and 80s where people used to drive around with no fat chicks bumper stickers on their cars. And the idea of dating a fat woman was like shame. And it was mocked even in television shows. Like definitely, you know, you would would see a guy and, and you know, there was, there were names for it. Chubby chaser, you know, there's Mm -hmm. all these Mm -hmm. names and shaming for, for men who actually were attracted to heavier women. And it's like a light went on for me then. And, and another light went on maybe, you know, in the last within the last 10 or 15 years just really thinking about and being able to for the first time be able to actually appreciate and 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 literally a, a appreciate beautiful curvy larger women and and just going oh my god like when i was a kid when i was 20 i never would have even considered someone like that to be beautiful and i think it's a it's just a brainwashing that has occurred yeah. and i've su- i had to deprogram myself from that and we still so, do. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, because BMI, by the way, is bullshit. Um, it wasn't mm. ever a measure that was supposed to be a measure of bodies. It was studied and created on white men. Um, mm-hmm. And in 1998, the National Health Organization just decided they were going to change all the numbers overnight. And so one day you were in a healthy BMI and then you woke up the next morning, the whole system changed and you became at an unhealthy BMI. And that's, that's literally what happened. Um, there's studies about this. It's written up. Um, and so the, you were overweight one day and then the next day you woke up and you were obese. So even just looking at BMI, it's, it's, it is bullshit. It's not a measure of anything. Um, and there is also some research that shows a higher level of BMIs are protective measures. You fare better um, and right. you live longer, but um, you know, but yeah, as you're saying, it's just that it was a image thing, Sean, you're right. And, um, and we're all programmed though, to think about BMI as a measure of something, but it's really a measure of nothing. Uh, it's an arbitrary number. Well, and also the advertising industry, and, and mm. we've really seen a lot of progress in the last five to 10 years. I don't know who the first to really do it was maybe the dove commercials or there were mm-hmm. some other, dove was- mm. Yeah, there's been there's been a there's been a change where now all of a sudden you're not seeing it's not size zero size two anymore that, that you're seeing a lot of diversity in in Absolutely. in body size which is just so welcome as far as I'm concerned. That mm-hmm. is so that is so true, Sean. And I just wanted to hit on that because man, that just hit home for me. And I what you said, I just hadn't thought of it. How in the past you're absolutely right. I mean, the idea of dating an overweight woman over quote unquote, see, there I go. Right. The, well, the, right. Like a, a it's just how people quote, thought of it. It's how people thought of it. Right. And it's like, it, I, I, it, and I, and, and what really hit me is when you said recently, what you just said at the, toward the end there was that like within those last several years, as I have thought about this and really tried to wrap my mind around this about a, a fat phobia and did the last ism really right the, the and and think about it like holy shit like wait i'm allowed like these women are attractive too right like you said right it's it's like it's it's not it just I, i'm just baffled and like 
I got to feel like I just got caught with my pants down a little bit here because I'm like, holy shit, that you're absolutely right. That's exactly how I thought about it growing up. That's exactly how I thought about it growing up. A lot of them aren't, they're not just, they're not just acceptable. They're really beautiful. Beautiful women. Absolutely beautiful but even women. Even the way we're talking about it, right? Even the way you, you both are talking about it, it's so interesting because you're still making a distinction between big yes. women and other women. You're right. Which is you're really absolutely right. Well, you know what it is? Um, okay, it's and that's you're tough. So right. That's tough because there's also been a backlash about discrimination against thin women, right? Because oh my with all, gosh, with yeah, all of the size acceptance, yeah, all of this roll, yeah. <laughs> size acceptance though, there's been a lot of thin women to go, hey, what about us? Right. It's kind of like it's but my point is, and your point is well taken, Stephanie, that uh we are still identifying a person by their body type. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And Athleta, the brand, just rolled out a, a competency that they're, they um, mandated for all their employees. Because while th there is size diversity in advertising, there's still really a lacking of size diversity in clothing that mm. people want to wear. Mm. Um, and Athleta just rolled out a training where, you know, they taught people, their employees, to not say things such as that looks so flattering on you because yes. again, when we say flattering, we mean thin. Right. Um, and, you know, so it's, they're the first, at least that I've heard of and that, you know, I'm very well uh, deep in this uh, sort of culture of anti-diet, <laughs> sure. um, but it's the first that I know of where, you know, you have to teach your employees not to make thinness the reason to buy clothes. Does it look good? Right. The stripes make you look thin. Oh, that makes your belly look whatever. Um, right. And it's it's such a pervasive problem. Such a pervasive. And you know what? I As I'm thinking here, you, you talked about advertising. And one thing that I've noticed, and I've, I'm sure I've talked to you about this, Stephanie, in the past, and I know I talk to Lindsay about it all the time, and that is uh, I've, you know, I never used to see uh, interracial couples or mm -hmm. on in advertising ever, 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 ever. Right. And now it's like, I see it all the time and I, and I'm heartened by that, but I'm also not heartened by the fact that all the kids are these mixed kids. And because like the right. And, and it's like, it's like, it's great that there's mixed kids, but like, why not just have black kids? Right. Like, because really, because really because the, the, and, and so it's, it's definitely an improvement. It's definitely a step in the right direction, but like you're saying, it sounds like it's like, it's still like, well, they're cute because they have that hair, that like fluffy hair and their skin is that perfect, beautiful skin tone. It's not right. Like as if there's something not as good as just being a dark skinned black person. Right. right. Um, you know what I'm saying? And like, so steps in the right direction for sure, but still um, but still problem. And, and relatedly, I'd like to talk specifically, and we've talked about this a lot and we don't have to go crazy with it, but we've uh, talking about, uh, specifically about how this impacts black people and black women mm -hmm. and, and, and as black women in particular, I think, uh, I think probably are, are, are really heavy hit by this. Um, I think, uh, I, I and, and I, I don't know if it's a, if it's a, if it's necessarily a diet, a diet or a culture, a cultural thing or a combination of those things or just a natural way that black bodies are. But I think that we like you keep saying, we can't talk about diet culture without talking about racism and white supremacy. Um, and maybe we should talk a little bit more more about that if we haven't said it all already. Well, we've never said it all, I think. Um, <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? I just can't imagine. I mean, I can imagine. I know what it's like to be a black guy and and be in, for example, I remember in high school and having uh, a friend of mine say, oh, I'm just not attracted to black people. 
right? Like, and, and knowing that with that, the girls that I went to high school with are thinking the same thing. So I can only imagine what it must be as a black woman to say like, I'm curvy. I am, uh, you know, I've got hips. I've got, uh, you know, I've got, uh, this is my body. This is my body. And then the entire culture says that there's something wrong with me. A great example of this is, you know, Lizzo is amazing and everyone loves Lizzo. And recently on her Instagram, she did, I think a 10 day, maybe it was a five day, whatever cleanse and the whole anti-diet, you know, world blew up. They were furious. And then a few black women and other women of color said, Lizzo didn't come out here to be your spokesperson. What are you looking to her for? She is just a person existing in her life, whether she does a cleanse or not, doesn't have any effect on you, but people were, you know, it's cancel culture, right? People were canceling her. People are right. (laughs) Um, But just because, and and Lizzo is amazing. She's very talented, but just because she, and she's beautiful, right? But because of that, people have made her the spokesperson Mm -hmm. for, um, anti-diet for this whole culture. And she's not, but, you know, and I think, the world is always ready to cancel a black woman for doing things. So she goes online, does a, you know, cleanse and everyone's ready to cancel her, even though she didn't sign up. She just signed up to be an artist who happens to live in a bigger body. She didn't come out here to be the body positive spokesperson of everyone, particularly white women. Um, Mm -hmm. I I was just thinking about that. And I was realizing that uh, it's still another form of association, right? You're taking somebody who has a larger body and you're now associating them with anti-diet, but it's still diet. You're still right. associating, <laughs> right. it's still, right. why, why are we talking about this? Because her body is large, right? Right, right. you're still othering them, <laughs> yeah. right? Exactly. It's, yes, the it's still yeah. othering. That's such a great point. That's such a great point. Yeah, you're still othering. It's like, it's as if, right? You know, I always joke about this with Lindsay. It's like, I am really unhappy that I don't have more, uh, you know, queer people in my life. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I, I'm always like, it, I missed that about being in law school is particularly right. Because the, it was, it was it, school in general is great like that because it pulls together a large, like all disparate types of people. And you just meet all kinds of different people and you're forced to interact with them. It is great like that work can be like that, but it's just not the same as school. It's not, you know, it work is work and there's professional and there's, there's boundaries, everything. Anyway, point is, and I'm always like, but, but, but then am I, um, but like, I'm like, oh man, I would love to have an, uh, have a LGBTQ friend. And it's like, wow, how awful is that? So I'm like othering them, but like, oh, come be my token mm-hmm. LGBTQ mm-hmm. friend. Like, and of mm-hmm. course I wouldn't, I don't really think that I don't really, I would never actually do that on those, be- on those, on those grounds. But it reminds me of similar, the, similar to what you guys are talking about here, which is like, look, just let the person be an LGBTQ person. Let her right. just be her, right? You, right. you know, from anyway, um, interesting stuff, interesting stuff. Um, so, yeah, and I, you know, I, yeah, I, 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 I this is the question I want to ask, and we already talked about it, but I'm just going to read the question because I thought I was really, really happy about the question, and um, I just want to read it, even though we already answered it. And that is, <laughs> yeah, it's it's taken it's taken it's taken as given at the radical secular that every element of American identity, history, and cultural culture necessarily interacts with America's unresolved legacy of chattel slavery. Tell us, Stephanie, how does that legacy impact diet culture? And we. Have have talked about that a little bit. Already. We have, but, and again, this is all in um, 
Dr. Sabrina Strings books. And, and she talks about this a lot, right? Because picture what um, a woman who was a slave looks like. Mm-hmm. I got it. Right. Yep. They're bigger bodied. Yep. Aunt Jemima, Aunt Jemima, right? Yeah, like the exactly. Big, big, right. It's amazing. You're so right. You're so fucking right. So how do you distinguish yourself from them? You become thin and you have the means and the access to become thin, you know, to um, distinguish yourself by. And that's one of the ways also diet culture started, right, is is it became a class issue. If you were thinner, you, you know, were sort of known to be. Uh, and again, this changed because originally it was if you were bigger, you were known to be um, of a higher class because you had more access to food. But somewhere sure. along the way that changed. Um And so, yeah, so if you think about that was one of the ways, and it's also a way to keep people down, right? To keep, Mm. you know, that sort of system. If you're not, you're just not as good, you're not seen as, as deserving if you live in a bigger body. And um, again, if we all close our eyes and picture what the slave woman looked like, a woman who was enslaved looked like, uh, they lived in bigger bodies. So it was sort of, you know, you knew where they stood in, in, the culture based on their body. Interesting. See, I'm I'm glad I read the question. This is the second time this happened. Second time this happened. I thought maybe fucking we'll skip it. But I was like, nah, nah, nah. The payoff was there. The payoff was there. I will also <laughs> say this because the distinction here is important too. This isn't necessarily about slavery, but it is about mm-hmm. racism. Um, wellness and diet culture co-ops food. And we make this right. Like this is a good food. This is a Um, and, but again, if you went and you saw people eating rice and beans, you would, you would have something to say about that. And you would say, oh, that's so many carbs or whatever you want to say. But then, um, somehow diet culture can make, you know, but if you're vegetarian and you're white and you eat beans, no one questions that. So true. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) So yeah, wow. it goes deep. It goes deep. The shit is deep. Well, and there's uh, also there's a difference there between, for example, um, refried beans that are made with a lot of lard, which tend mm-hmm. to be eaten not by white people, versus beans that you cooked yourself, like black beans. You know that are that are that have less calories per right. It's there's 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 just so many cultural uh, traditions that play into this. But again, it's appropriation, right? Because we will take beans now and make them healthy. Mm-hmm. Even though beans aren't really, you know, that culturally, like, as you're saying, they're a cultural food. And then if we take them and make them healthy, it's a way that we distinguish that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I, I, I want we're running out of time here. And I know, Stephanie, your time is limited. Um, and I want to uh, round this conversation out with a, a discussion that is uh, perhaps it may perhaps a little narcissistically. I want to. Uh, talk about this book called Atomic Habits. Now, let me just read really quickly here. The, uh, the I read a book last year called Atomic Habits. The book's thesis is that our goals are generally only as achievable and sustainable as our habits are productive. In other words, if we want to achieve a particular goal, we need to make the activities that will allow us to reach that goal part of our day-to-day habits. That analysis rings quite true and quite useful in my experience. When I reflect critically on my past successes in life, as grand as, say, completing law school or as personally gratifying and simple as learning to play a guitar or completing an essay, I usually can also identify the positive habits that led me to achieve those goals. 
But the Atomic Habits approach also can also lead to self-defeating outcomes that seem to mirror many of the problems we've identified with diet culture. As I've matured, I've had to learn that even though I didn't meditate today or I didn't work out or I didn't eat healthy today, I didn't write today, doesn't mean that I fucked up. I've had to balance that self-acceptance with the need to format my, my behavior to achieve goals that are important to me. How do you think about that, Stephanie? And what does a healthy relationship with exercise and diet and body image look like in your view? One of the main taglines that people say is if we think more about what our body does and not what it looks like, that's how that's really the definition of a healthy body image, right? Mm -hmm. Because our bodies do so much for us. But if we are focused on what they look like, that's a losing battle. Mm -hmm. Um and we become consumed with that because we are also taught that we can change that. And, you know, a lot of things we cannot change um, or, you know, so um, I think to quickly say that would be a healthy body image thinking, you know, being sure. respectful of your body, what it can do, not what it looks like. And similarly, that's, useful. that's helpful. I'm super passionate about the relationship to exercise um, because diet culture definitely stole that. And mm. an unpopular opinion that I have is that I think anti-diet culture also sort of goes the other extreme. Um, but a, a healthy relationship with exercise is one in which you find enjoyment and it isn't done to change your body, but it's done to add to your life, right? All the research shows exercise is great for depression, anxiety, concentration, uh, bone health, right? We could, hormonal health, we could go on and on, brain health. Um, but if you wake up and you feel as though, oh, I need to work out because I ate too much food or I need to work out because I don't like the way my arms look, you've created a negative association Mm. And one that is sort of not a positive and it's one, it's harder to maintain that it becomes obsessive, but also um, it takes away from the benefits of exercise in itself that one can derive pleasure from. And again, it's if it's focused on what it can do for you holistically, but not at all what it can do for how your body looks. Right. It's, I, I, I have to admit that I, one of the things that I struggle with that. The body image issue is a male issue too, obviously, yes. but it, it, and, and and more and more so that men are being willing to talk about that. I think in a mm -hmm. way that they weren't in the, weren't past, socialized to do in the past. Um, but that's something that I definitely struggle with, right? I'm a relatively thin guy, um, and uh, but still, you know, I look at myself in the mirror and I say to myself, "Oh, I wish I didn't see that. Or I didn't see that." And like, and generally, I'm I, I'm not like I have been in the past. Um, I'm much more reasonable, but still, I still feel that 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 pang of man, I should have done that or I should have done this. And that's what I was getting at with the atomic habits question is like I find I find that there's a balance to be struck between wanting to achieve something. If you want if I want to achieve a goal and it, for my own personal goal, like like write an essay or write a book, like I only achieve that if I set if I make it basically I create a positive habit structure that I do and I do and I write every day. And if I do, but at the same right. time, there's that balance between, I don't want to be beating myself up. I spent so many years of my life feeling like shit about myself because I wasn't adhering to Sean and I grew up in an, as you know, an incredibly rigid ethical and moral system. And so I don't want to fall into this place where I'm like beating myself up all the time. So it's like this balance to be struck there. It sounds like 
you know, the holistic way of looking at exercise might be a good analogy here for the for, for the broader question of how to balance uh, positive habits and outcomes with with healthy with like like healthy self psychology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I had something to add about this, and I think Please. that one of the issues it's just like at the beginning of the show when I was talking about how having a little bit of extra weight was an advantage in a famine situation. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we're in a situation where industrialization has made exercise optional. And that has led to this problem of, of, of exercise becoming a matter of self-discipline when for most of human history, it was a matter of necessity. Right. You, had, you had to go to the well to get water. You had to be out in the fields. You had to be doing this and that. You're, you had to be working an industrial job where you're, you know, you're moving around all day. There was no, like, there's no issue with the male body as long as the male is working 12 hours a day. Right. right you're just not right. going to get it. You're not going to get into <laughs> a sedentary lifestyle where you have to worry about disciplining yourself to exercise. And so this is a new problem of industrialization. It's also a first world problem because there's Definitely. much more manual labor that takes place in in poorer countries than there is here. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the class is just such a huge part of this. Right. And that mm-hmm. is, I think, the theme that runs through this entire show is that class is such a huge factor because uh, the, like you talked about access, Stephanie. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and we talked about food deserts. Uh, we talked about lack of resources. And it's just it ends up being a critical, a critical factor, a critical factor here and, and just being white. And just and 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 having and and having that also be happen to be the ideal, right? To be a thin white woman or a thin or a thinner white guy or a built white guy or whatever, um, uh, it, it is is ends up being um, ends up being a serious factor. So um, anyway, look, I know Stephanie, I know you have to go, and I I'm so happy that you were here with us. Um, it was just a lot of fucking fun and super insightful, like super insightful. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was an awesome conversation. I'm glad I, we really did enjoy- it. I enjoyed it. And uh, it was, it was great to meet you and, and, and talk with you, Stephanie. You too. Well, I had a lot of fun talking to Stephanie. Sean, does anything stick out to you uh, about our conversation? Well, all I can say is that I, I having not ever met Stephanie before, I was just thoroughly impressed with how clear her answers were on all of these topics and how much thought she's obviously put into them. And I just, it was, I really enjoyed the conversation. I, nothing in particular, but everything in general. Totally, totally. It was, it was an absolute pleasure for me. I, uh, think that Stephanie is a really impressive person. She's been an incredibly close friend as you and I have talked about um, for a long, long time. And and she just knows her shit. She knows her shit uh, up and down, inside and out, and it shows. And she's good at talking. And it, and it was really great to have the three of us on here just having a really fun, interesting, but also insightful conversation. Definitely. Yeah. Well, Anyway, here we are at the end of the show again. I want to remind you, everyone out there, to make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and write us a review. And tell your friends and family about the show because word of mouth really does matter. So, look, thank you so much for being here. And remember that wherever you are, you can be Radically Secular. You've been listening to The Radical Secular a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. 
For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.